Hey, what's up, Warrior? It is Jeff from WarriorLife.com, and welcome to podcast episode number 426. So forget what you see on the news, forget what you see in the movies. If you really want to know what a natural disaster looks like and how to prepare for it, you need to get the inside perspective from those who've actually lived through it. They've made their mistakes, they've learned their lessons, and that's what we have in store for you with this week's show. And don't worry about taking notes because we've done all the heavy lifting for you with this week's handy-dandy one-page cheat sheet you can download absolutely free in the new Loot Locker section of our website. If you don't have access to Loot Locker, go ahead and head on over to warriorlife.com loot and sign up for free. You'll find all of our past checklists waiting for you in there as well as a bunch of other really cool resources to add to your training. And now, let's talk tactics. Tactical firearms training. Urban survival. Close quarters combat. Welcome to the show that helps you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is the Warrior Life Podcast. All right. Hey, what's up there, Warriors? Jeff Anderson here from WarriorLife.com and WarriorLife Academy. And welcome to this week's uh, streaming broadcast for our podcast. We've got a special one for you today because one of the big things when we went out to everybody that were that were subscribers to our channel or followers and different social networks that we have. And we asked them when we were putting together the Academy, it's like, what are you really looking for in advice or in a training area or in any sort of mentorship with helping you reach your goals faster and more effectively? By far, one of the biggest things that came across was that we don't, we, all we want is real world experience for practical people. People didn't want to have to have washboard abs, be as fit as a Navy SEAL, have a monster truck, four-wheel drive that could get them up into the mountains with an underground bunker that they could live out the apocalypse like underground. Like it's not practical for people, right? And so what fortunately our network is all based upon all instructors and trainers and field experts specifically to things that they have dealt with in real life. It's always better to learn from people that have actually experienced things and have made the mistakes in their own world so that we can learn by those other people's mistakes. That is by far going to take you much further, is going to give you the real world advice that you're looking for. And so as uh, as we've talked about, as me and you have talked about, uh, we just went through uh, in in my change from Texas on over to uh, living in Florida now. Probably the worst state I could possibly move to. Where if I ever had to evacuate, like I've, I'm I'm in the worst spot. Like there's only one way to go. I've got to go north for this thing, right? And we just ha- recently had a brush with Hurricane Ian as it came through, and I learned a lot of lessons along the way there. And I've shared that with you in a previous podcast. Well, a good friend of mine who also lived in the path of a hurricane has also experienced the same sort of devastation that has come through her area. And so I immediately reached out to her and said, look, we've got to get you on because I know what is happening over there only from the news. But what I want is real boots on the ground experience with what are the lessons that you learned, even knowing as much as you do about self-reliance and being prepared for emergencies, what are some of the things that you learned in this process, whether it's your own preparations or whether it was people that are around you. So I'm really happy to, if this is the first time I think we've had her on one of our podcasts, but I'd like you to meet Marjorie Wildcraft. Marjorie, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, you and I go back a long way, so it's kind of surprising I haven't been on the podcast, but <laughs> love love talking with you. 
Yeah, this is uh, this is great. Like, Mar- I, listen, everybody, I've known Marjorie for years, and she really is somebody who who walks the talk when it comes to living a self reliant life. I and mean, she's the founder of the Grow Network, which is a community of people that are really focusing on modern self sufficient living. And she's been featured in National Geographic as an expert in off grid living, and she has inspired hundreds of thousands of people who have backyard gardens, who have chickens, who have rabbits all around the world. And most recently, she developed her guide, The Grow System, the essential guide to modern self-sufficient living from growing food to making medicine, which is another big, that's a whole other topic that we could that we could get into at some point. But it's so critical these days. This type of living, we, people are realizing more and more that you can't depend upon the government or even your local grocery store to be able to take care of you, especially in these days of inflation, right? Now, she's also known for her DVD series, Grow Your Own Groceries, which has over a half million copies that are out there being used by homesteaders, foodies, preppers, universities, missionary organizations all around the world. Um, It's all out there. And she is my go-to person when it comes to anything self-sufficient because she lives the lifestyle. If you want to know more about her and the training that she has available to you, you can go on over to thegrownetwork.com. Uh, so Marjorie, I, again, I, I, I learned a lot and I always like to go through kind of the different pillars of preparedness and looking at what we would do for, um, any sort of thing that I'm working on with, uh, whether it's for my own preparation, whether it is for my family, um, even for things that we put out to the public, because I want it all to be based upon, like, basically I'm just bringing people along for my ride, right? Yeah. So what I thought I would do is is go through some of those pillars with you, specifically like shelter, food, water, communication, medical, and even security-wise. Um, you live in Puerto Rico now, or you share your time in between Colorado and Puerto Rico, and Hurricane Fiona came through and really whacked Puerto Rico recently, uh, knocking out power and things like that. And so um, I, what I love the most is digging into your experience and people's experience when it comes to, we've learned certain things, but it's always a process of learning more and more. And yeah. so what I want to do is get some of those, what are some of the things that you changed or learned about, made mistakes in, are improving on? Um, what are some things that you've discovered when Fiona kind of came through there and whacked you guys along the way? So let's just, if you're okay with this, let's just take this one by one and first talk about shelter. What are some of the things that you learned about? Well, I guess. What are some of the things that you had done ahead of time for shelter? And what are some of the lessons that you learned when the hurricane came through regarding shelter? Yeah, well, when the hurricane came through, so um, first of all, I'm, temp- I'm I'm in a temporary situation here. I'm renting uh, with a friend of mine, so I'm not in my permanent home yet. And it was really great to be here through that hurricane. Uh, first of all, with Category 1 winds, we're on the top of a ridge. So this house is on the top, Most a lot of the houses here, because during when it's not hurricaning you get a really good breeze and it tends to be cooler and there's less mosquitoes when you have a breeze coming through and then of course the views everybody wants an ocean view or a mountain view so a lot of the houses here are built on the ridges but boy when a hurricane comes you're going to get whacked extra hard because that all that wind is is hitting that ridge um you know i really really came to appreciate a concrete block house with metal uh you know, windows covering hurricane windows. 
you know, it, I, we went through the hurricane and, um, you know, I did that the building did really, really, really well. And I was really grateful to be in this building in the, in the midst of that, uh, the, um, people down lower, of course, people down by the, uh, down by the ocean, of course, people always want to be close to the beach. A lot of them got flooded out, which, you know, of course, I never wanted to live there for that because the soil would be too salty. Um, and in fact, we had, we had one friend who was flooded, like she, you know, a foot to 18 inches of water in her apartment. So she booked it up here and, and camped out with us for four or five days. The waters could recede and she could clean and sanitize her apartment to, to, to alleviate the potential mold growth. Um, I, the safest place to be and where I really want to be and what I've noticed traveling around, I'm still looking at houses. I'm still trying to buy a house, which is kind of sad. Like we're so close to this whole thing falling apart. I don't have a place, right? You know, but uh, being about halfway up a hill looks to be ideal because then the, the winds aren't as uh, hard. Um, definitely anything made out of wood. Um, after Hurricane Maria, especially, none of the mortgage companies will, will give you a mortgage on any houses or any rooftops made with wood, which is wise because that stuff just gets shredded. Um, so uh, those are some of the lessons of, uh, you know, no matter what area you're in, you're going to have you're going to have a hazard, right? Uh, one of the reasons moving from Colorado to here was Colorado and Texas, where I had lived before. The biggest hazard there is drought and fire. Um, so, you know, no matter where you live, there's going to be something. I grew up in South Florida, so I'm like really comfortable with hurricanes. You know, when I was a kid, they'd say hurricane and I'd say party because, you know, all the grownups would get drunk and we would just get to play for days and there'd be gigantic mud puddles afterwards you could play in. Right. So for me, I have an association of hurricanes being a really good thing. Um, I, I looked at one point in time at living on the in the Hawaiian Islands and I realized I would always have a low level fear of that volcano blowing. And I just didn't, I don't want to live in the, you know, it's, but everywhere you're going to have a hazard. So the thing is, is what hazard are you mostly comfortable with and how do you adapt to it? So housing, you know, here, uh, definitely concrete block houses with solid, you know, metal uh, hurricane windows definitely survive these really high intensity storms and, and, and are good. And that's not to say that the whole yard wasn't like, destroyed and basically the entire island of puerto rico got pruned all the trees got pruned you know there's definitely some stuff going on but um in terms of shelter you know it became abundantly obvious to me what i want and what i don't want there is one thing that is very surprising to me though that some of the container homes you know those 40 foot homes that people make out of out of old shipping containers yeah some of those have done really really well through hurricanes which i i found kind of shocking but um um, often, I think, again, it was because they were strategically placed like up against the side of a hill or something. So um, using natural formations to place your house, if you're going to be building one, uh, is, is another real good uh, strategy there. Yeah. The other thing that really comes to mind with what you're saying is you know, we talk a lot about having a plan B, like having another location that you can go to if you need to be if you're if you're forced to evacuate the area and me going through hurricane Ian, we were already evacuated. My, um, my girlfriend and I, and so we weren't, we weren't around for it. I did definitely learned some lessons because our house wasn't ready for the hurricane to hit. Now we were fortunate that it took a, took a turn South 
uh, right like the day before. It was headed straight toward our living room. It was headed straight at our living room. And we're close yeah. to the water, but we're on high ground. So we would, I think we would have been all right that way. We probably would have lost more trees. We lost some limbs and things like that. Um, but the it's a hundred year old house. So the windows aren't, they're not, they weren't made for hurricanes. Um, yeah. The walls are, but the, but you know, the windows aren't, but what I, but what I just got out of what you're saying is that we tell people that you should have a plan B, you should be able to evacuate someplace. It's going to be safer, but it's not just about like, okay, do you find a relative and that's 150 miles away that in different directions, we, we talk about like those, those choices, those, like how to choose that place. But the, um, you know, you also have to look at what are the threats of that area? So one of like our first, like it's our, actually our secondary look, we have a primary uh, evacuation location and we have a secondary evacuation location. The secondary one is in, is over the border in Georgia, which would be fine. Like I'm not worried about storm surge there. Right. However, right. having gone through a flood in Texas, like a, a deadly flood where the, the water rose over uh, 40 feet, we lost people in that flood. So where the place that you go to, like if the hurricane goes past, like it, it's going to hit landfall, but all of a sudden it's dumping water all over the place. You might've chosen a location that's going to be fine from the hurricane. However, is it located near a flood zone? You know, so you really, you do have to do that due diligence on the the location that you're looking at as a plan B evacuation spot also. The, the vast majority of damage here was due to flooding. I mean, this hurricane moved very, very slowly. It hit the southern part of the island first, and then it hugged the southern coast, and then it moved north up the western coast. But it moved was moving like six to eight miles an hour, which is very slow, and it was just dumping massive amounts of water everywhere. So the flooding, you know, that little cabin by the creek looks so great until that creek swells and, and you know, your cabin is underwater, right? So, yeah, um, flooding actually was the biggest cause of damage here, more so than than the high winds. So definitely another concern. Yeah. Let's go ahead and let's dump right into your your specialty, which is which is food also. Um I'm not sure what you, how you were set up there beforehand, but I'm curious about, like, I, I think Puerto Rico has a little bit of an advantage from the standpoint of they've been through so many natural disasters that people kind of, uh, I say this, this is an assumption of mine. I'll tell you why, but I feel like Puerto Rico should know a little bit better, be a little bit better prepared because they're, they're able to better sustain themselves without electricity. The things that we become very dependent upon in the United States domestically are things that people may be, they may already have had to deal without electricity. They've already made the mistakes. They already know how to prepare for those things. I say that with an assumption. And I say for this reason, because in Florida, there've been so many hurricanes that have headed toward our location where I live now. And yet every single time, right before that hurricane is getting ready to hit, there are still people that, that, you know, lines for gasoline, for people's generators, people are getting into fights at the, at the gas pumps. You go to the grocery store, there's just line after line after line. People are getting upset because somebody's hoarding all the water. I would think people would have gotten it by now. They yeah, don't yeah. seem to get it, right? So I'm yeah. curious, on the food side, what did you happen to notice um, like in preparation leading up to it for yourself and then around you as well? And I guess even in the rebuilding after the after the hurricane hit. 
Yeah, from the food side, and and I will say Puerto Ricans are they are learning. Um, so I was not here for Maria, but people who have lived here a long time, I said, we're all there. So, you know, what was here before? And they said, no, there were no solar panels. After Maria, there were you started to see solar panels and almost every home here uh, has a water tank on the side, 100 gallons, 300 gallons. And some, some of them will pump city water into it, but they have a and, and not collect off the roof, which is kind of crazy. But at least they almost everybody has a backup water supply. A lot of people have backup power supply, even if it's just those fold out solar things so they can charge their uh, their cellar, cell phones. And a lot of people do stock up on on food. The, I love watching the grocery stores. I was like hitting the grocery stores like, you know, we know this thing is coming. And yeah, just before the uh, hurricane hit, like, you know, we're seeing a lot of empty shelves. But interesting, you know, the grocery store owners know it, too. And they had they had that thing stocked up almost immediately, though. So uh, the grocery stores did go down into minimal hours after the hurricane hit. Um, but even a lot of the grocery stores have massive solar panel arrays on their roof uh, so that they can stay open keep things cool. Uh, and not lose inventory. So I, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, Puerto Rico is prepper island in, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Also in a longer term emergency, which this wasn't one, uh, you know, we have a pretty much a year round growing season. And even though it's absolutely atrocious, and it's part of the reason I'm here that they import 85% of their food, they absolutely could become food self-reliant pretty quickly here. And there's still a lot of people with the, with the old skills. So food, and of course, we're, you know, I'm a prepper. <laughs> Anybody who's living with me is going to be a prepper. And we had lots of food on hand. And most people did have lots of food. One, one interesting story is um, about a week after the hurricane hit, it, it took at least 10 days for the power to come back on in our, um, in our community here. Um, and some people, I, I remember I hosted, a, I host a plant and seed swap party every two months to, to, to help people, you know, just get gardens going, right? It's the thing I do. And uh, almost everybody's garden was decimated just because the high winds, was, you know, nobody's stuff is going to make it. And a friend of mine grows uh, seedlings and she had big trays of seedlings that she tucked away in the garage for the hurricane. And she brought those out and gave them away to people. Um, but while I was at the party, two women came up to me and said, hey, can you get the word out? And she, they said, we're, we're just tired of paying for the money for to keep our generator going, our gas generator to keep the freezer cool. Um, and we've thought out everything and we're going to cook it all up tonight. We're giving it away tomorrow at the plaza, at the farmer's market, if you can get the word out because we want it, you know, we want everybody to eat it up. So, you know, there were interesting things like that. On the whole, this community has been through enough and we know, you know, there's something about living on an island uh, and especially an island that like, I think Trump called us a shithole country. I mean, we kind of know we're like, the bastard stepchild of the United States. So there's there's something about people do pull together here. Yeah, that's super uh, interesting. I'll I'll tell you why. Um, when I was uh, when I was in uh, in combat in Panama, it was right around. It was in December of of eighty nine, and my best is but it's literally my best Christmas ever. Um, mm -hmm. We had taken over. There was a it was all done and it was all in the city. And so there was this one block that we had, we had kind of taken over, but there, I mean, there are lots of residents there. So it's not, I mean, they're not the enemy, but we had the same problem. We, you know, there was no resupply of groceries. So people had a lot of, and there, and even like sanitation, everything was all just, just decimated there. It just, it came to a standstill. 
And um, all of the people in in that block where we were, um, they realized that they were going to lose a lot of their food also because they were going, they were rolling blackouts and things that were happening. And so they put together this midnight, it was Christmas Eve night. They put together this, this midnight feast for us because they were going to lose the food anyway. And we just, they, they came out at midnight singing songs. They were singing Christmas carols and put up this big spread. And what I really noticed was it changed the dynamics of everything. It changed it from almost like an occupation in some ways. There were some people that were happy that we were there. Nobody liked Noriega and, and, you know, that sort of thing, but it pulled the community together. And I know we're going to talk about security here also, because I think a lot of times, especially people that have not been through an emergency, I think they, they oftentimes, in fact, I've even seen it in when we had our own, we had the flood that came through our town. There were people like the next day had plywood out there, like, you know, looters will be shot, like putting it up in front of their house and things like that. It's a Texas thing for sure. (laughs) (laughs) It is, right? Yeah. Gotta love Texas. Gotta love the country of Texas. Yeah. But it was like, but that's not what you experience initially. Now, there are some like locations, of course, where we know that the the predators, the wolves of society are going to be out there as soon as they can trying to take advantage of the opportunity. But in communities, you actually have more of a pulling together, at least in the very beginning, right? Like people really, they've all, you've shared an experience that's really, it can be very um, challenging. It can be very, um, uh, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's there's all sorts of emotions that are around it. And so people tend to gravitate together when they do that and pull together and work together to be stronger. And and that is certainly what I have, I've experienced also. And like, it sounds like for you also, like, we're going to lose this food. Let's go ahead and have, we're going to cook it all up. People are giving away seeds. Yeah, it's great. So I think I agree with you. I agree with you. That is the initial response to a short-term emergency that we know this is going to be over soon. We know the mainland is still functioning just fine. We know there's going to be a ton of support. We know this is going to be up and running. So we know it's a short-term emergency. So I can tell you another quick story. And that is, uh, so, uh, you know, I love to walk around the village and, uh, and uh, you know, it's just kind of a fun thing to do. Uh, normally, you go visit shopkeepers and say hi, and I've kind of got a route and, you know, you just, it, this is a very small community and we all really, it's a really diverse, but, but fun loving community. And I was doing this one walk and I was down and a lot of the streetlights are, well, streetlights are all out because <laughs> the power's out. And I was walking down this one street and it was kind of dark and it was kind of a little off the, you know, you know, the wasn't near all the shops or anything. And uh, this group of young men, I don't know, there's six or eight of them come walking the sidewalk toward me and um, we pass. And then, and, and then some of them are like giving me cat calls and stuff. And I'm thinking they can't see who I really am. <laughs> like, they don't know that I'm like, I could be their mother, but um, I'm thinking, well, that's great. You know, I look great in the dark anyway. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but I, as I walked past, I got to thinking, and I, you know, just for safety's sake, I just did turn down another street that did have light on it. And, you know, I mean, I've lived in, in cities enough to, to have some sense. Um, and I thought, well, you know, and I saw more of that. I saw more groups of young people and especially young men out walking around in groups where you don't, you know, that was, that was uh, a little bit unusual, right? Um, because they didn't have anything else to do. You know, the television one, the Nintendo or whatever wasn't mm-hmm. happening. Nintendo might age me. And I thought, wow, you know, if we were in a long-term emergency, that would have been a very, very, that could have been a potentially very dangerous uh, situation right there. Um, you know, and that would could very likely be something that would happen, would be, 
you know, there is uh, remnants here and you see it all over the houses of bars all over the doors and all over the windows. Um, and I was talking to one Puerto Rican who was a young man in the 80s and his dad was a farmer and he grew up on this small farm. And I said, what was it like back then? And he said, oh, my dad went through so much ammunition. And I said, oh my God, what, was he shooting people? He said, no, he didn't shoot people, but he shot at them um, because he was trying to scare them away from, from stealing our crops. Uh, so, and I really want to dig more into the history here in Puerto Rico, but there have been times when things have gotten very hard and very difficult. He was saying, you know, it shocked him that, you know, they would hire somebody to work or something. They thought they had a great relationship and then it turned out that person was stealing from them. So, you know, in a long-term emergency situation, uh, people do change and, and things do change. But in this particular hurricane, it, you know, it was mostly fine. Uh, definitely some people were hurt, but other people were helping them out. Hmm. So let's let's talk let's talk through that a little bit more because you're you're looking to buy a buy a house there, right? And so you being the you're the food girl. So how has this maybe changed? Um, and and especially knowing that has it changed mm-hmm. at all your plan for how you'll create a sustainable garden there that will provide be able to provide you food while you're there, but also in an emergency, whether it's short term or whether it's long term. One one of the things that I'm working to do is create a large community garden. Where, with like two or 300 garden plots where two or 300 families are growing food. And the reason I want it so large is because we'll need a large collective so that we, we can share the duties for security, quite frankly, not only from people, but one of the other problems we have here are <laughs> iguanas. They have these ginormous iguanas that eat everything, right? So uh, pellet gun time, iguanas are good eaten, by the way. So um uh, also, the, the skill share of some of the older, they call them hibara, the people that live off the land. And, you know, when they're in their gardening, then they're teaching us, all the rest of us who don't necessarily know all these species or all the things. Uh, so I'm working to create a very large community garden. I'm, I really believe uh, community is the response. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Are we going to have more violence? Are we going to have more trouble? Absolutely. Um, but in general, I really believe in the good heartedness of people. Um, um, and, and I believe if you put those things in place and if you work towards that, people will want that solution. Um, and, and, you know, that's what I do, right? That's what you do. You're a leader. And, and probably those of you that are listening to this podcast, you're leaders, right? And there's going to be a time when your study government is completely, you know, they've, they're gone, right? And you're going to be the one who needs to stand up and come up with solutions and ideas and organization, right? Uh, and so, yeah, so creating a community garden I'm also encouraging everybody I know that has the resources to buy backup food. The more backup food supplies we have collectively, the better off the whole community is going to be. And then again, I host these things like the plant and seed swap parties. I'm also hosting, uh, you know, gardening 101 classes or wild meadows and plant walks or, you know, doing everything I can to help shift this community more towards uh, self-reliance and preparedness. Um, and fortunately here, it's, you know, the message is widely, widely accepted. I mean, people get it. They, they, they get that they live on an island and that bad things happen. So they've been through enough. Honestly, when I was living in Texas, um, you know, there were some people who got it. But honestly, you, just like you were talking about in Florida with people like going, still, what? There's a hurricane coming? I better go get some water. You got my water? I'm going to hit you. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they're still pretty much got their head in the sand, right? But but here, uh, it, it's a little bit more amenable. But those are some of the, like, I'm embracing the, 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 um, the solution of community. Now, that's not to say 
that, you know, I'm applying for my concealed carry license and I definitely keep my, um, you know, my skills active with a rifle and a handgun and I'm training in jujitsu and I'm very aware, you know, that things are going to get dicey. Uh, so I'm not stupid, but, um, you know, I, I am, I'm doing everything I can to, to have the community pull together, uh, and be a community. Yeah. Better be a warrior in the garden than the gardener in the warrior, right? In the war. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a great saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's not mine, but I, I just want to make sure because everybody's going to like, like, wait a minute, Jeff, that's not yours. Yeah, like, yeah. Right. It's not like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about water. I mean, obviously, you know, we say that, you know, water is even more critical than it is for food. Um, now, fortunately, yeah. you're not in an area that's like, like drought ridden, like you, but you can be surrounded by water and still not have enough water, right? With sure. hurricane, you have a little bit too much water going on there. But what are some of the things that you maybe observed when it came to having drinkable, you know, clean, drinkable water? Because I know like in, in times where there's, when there's massive flooding, um, there's a mixture of all the chemicals from engines, from the roads, from everything that can really contaminate the drinking water supply. Yeah. Backup sewage. Absolutely. So what are some of the things that you observed along the way when it came to having accessibility to clean drinkable water? Well, this is also one of the reasons that really you should practice with your preps, you know, I mean, really get, get used to doing it. So for us, it, it really wasn't a big, again, I'm a prepper, right? So it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and we do have rainwater collection here and the hurricanes come during rainy season. So honestly, hurricane, you know, what rainwater collection is as simple as putting, a, you know, a, one of those 55 gallon drums or a big garbage can underneath a place where the water falls off the roof and, and, and it just fills up, right? Uh, so, you know, we switch from from taking showers to uh, doing a bucket bath, right? And just in two gallons of water, you can really clean yourself fairly well. Um, and I take two or three of those a day because there's the sweating and the heat because, you, you know, you're not, you, the fans and the air conditioning are not as readily abundant. Uh, so bathing was pretty straightforward. The Berkey filter, you know, like, duh, right? <laughs> you know, we just had that up on the counter and you know, use that for, uh, you know, uh, drinking water and toothbrushing and, and cooking. So the water situation was pretty simple. Now, the people who, again, were down uh, by the ocean and got completely flooded out, and, and really it is the backed up sewage uh, and all the stuff you're talking about, like a lot of the run out the streets here are designed, the streets actually funnel water into some of these lower lying areas. So they were like completely overwhelmed. And yeah, they, that's why my friend who I said was here and in the, in the, stayed camped out in our living room for about four or five days, you know, after the waters receded, she was going through and having to sanitize everything with you know, Clorox and, and to clean everything because there's no telling what was in that water mm -hmm. and you just don't want to want to live with that. Um, again, as I said, most houses do have some sort of backup water supply. I was, I've always been kind of surprised because they hook it up to the city water to fill it up when they could as just as easily have it come off the roof. But, you know, um, what at least they have it, right? You know, mm -hmm. and honestly, you know, really uh, for bathing and cooking and everything, you, you, you only need about 10, 10 gallons a day at the most. Uh, so it, it's, um, you know, use your preps, know what your preps are, use them, be ready to use them, maybe even take a weekend to practice it sometime and you just say, shut off the water and just, just try it, you know, get used to it is my recommendation. Yeah. And especially, you know, areas in drought, absolutely. You need to, you need to have a lot more water supply. You need to figure out, 
that swimming pool, how you're going to filter that and use it or, or, you know, the old trick of using the water in your hot water heater um, or, um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, it, it's interesting because people can really, um, it's why I tell people like you're better off having a way to manufacture your own water and it doesn't have to be like in Texas. I had, um, we were relatively off grid, but we had a 52,000 gallon rainwater harvesting tank that was fed off of two buildings. It was the mm-hmm. best water I've ever drank in my entire life. I miss it so much, but it doesn't have to be that elaborate. I mean, that was a pretty elaborate system that we had built out there, but all it really needs to be is go down to Home Depot and you you can get some other like 55 gallon drums and things like that. They also have those planters that are made for rainwater collection. Just throw the downspout from your, from your roof down into it. And, um, and it goes inside of there. And now it's not going to be drinkable water right off of there. If you've got a roof that's using any sort of shingles, things like that, it's not going to be like that. You can't use a shingle roof with like rainwater collection. We always had like a metal roof in, in Texas. However, it does create a collection of water that as long as it's not contaminated by outside contaminants can be used to be able to just filter it. And so if you can, if you have a filter ready, uh, we use, we use an inline filter, whether it's in your bug out bag or whether it, it can just easily be exchanged over into just filling that thing up with the water that you've collected. And now all of a sudden you have a way to generate your own water as well. So, um, so yeah, you don't have to be limited just by what you store, but also what you can collect. You don't need an elaborate system to be able to do it either. So cool. Having lived 25 years in areas that were drought is the biggest um, threat, which mm-hmm. also leads to fire, of course. You know, I've made it a rule anywhere I live, I want to have at least three sources of water. And so collecting rain water off a roof is a, just a simple one. Having a pond or something like that is another one. If you can't have a pond, then just get one of those above ground swimming pools, which you're going to jump in anyway and have a good time with the kids. You know, a well, city water, you know, there's a lot of a nearby stream that you feel like you can you can pull out of. Um, but water is crucial. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's absolutely essential. And so that's that's, uh, you know, and, and again, that's my rule. I always have at least three sources of water that I know I can get to in any emergency. Now, on the island, did they did you notice that there was any response with um, like water distribution areas? Obviously, like that's going to be one of the biggest concerns for people is just dehydration, uh, the most immediate threat also. And so did they have a response where there were local areas where people could go and get water or food? Most people already have that figured out with they know who is a neighbor that has a well. Um, the city water was actually out for, for the city here that I live in. The, the municipal water was out for, I think, about a week at least. And then we aren't on the city water. We have a well, but our electric was out for uh, 10 days. And so we didn't have water in that way. Um, you know, the grocery stores had some. We didn't, you know, but no, there was not necessarily a distribution. Uh, I think that's really handled more privately of like, you know, in most communities, somebody has a well, they're all illegal, (laughs) but you know, you know, my neighbor has one and they know, and you know, again, there's, there's this sense of community. Um, So uh, yeah, no, there wasn't, there's not, there was not necessarily a coordinated uh, support effort going on here Mm. that I could see. Yeah. Just because, you know, the whole island was was wiped out I, in, with the electric anyway. Actually, that's a whole nother thing. Luma is the electrical provider for the entire island. And this one hurricane, which is a category one hurricane, and Luma is just this unbelievably corrupt 
organization, which is good and bad. One is it's bad because it's corrupt. And one a hurricane, category one hurricane wipes out 100% of the electric on the island. The great thing about it is, is so many people know that the system is so bad that they all have, you know, backup generators, backup solar panels and the whole thing. That same hurricane, Fiona, hits the Dominican Republic, you know, a few days later as a category two or three, and only like 7% of the power is out. So it can be done. You know, the systems can be made resilient, but uh, in this particular region, you know, we've got, there, there's other uh, uh, political problems. But again, I see that as a strength, honestly. Um, you know, the, the, the whole grid is failing, the cost of, oh, by the way, um, I just saw this recently. Uh, um, my, my housemate showed me a copy of her electric bill. And I don't know if this is happening in other places, but electricity has gone from 30 cents a kilowatt hour to $1.63 a kilowatt hour, more than a 500% increase just in the last six months. Like it's just this astonishing increase. And I'm I'm trying to figure out why that is. I know the cost of natural gas has gone up and diesel, and I they have a mixture of different power. I think there's like 18 power plants on the island and they have a mixture of fuel sources they're using, but I don't know why it should have gone up that much. And it was prior to Hurricane Fiona that the that this has been going on. So, but mm. I think that that's going to be something that is going to be hitting the mainland, it's its going on in the UK right now uh, and in a lot of Europe, uh, Germany, England, France, uh, you know, they're, they're, the cost of electricity is, is skyrocketing. So if you are thinking about getting solar panels right now, you just do it, just do it today. Just go buy it right now because the price of those is just gonna skyrocket because there's going to be global demand for um, energy going forward. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've started to see it here in Florida as well. I don't know the exact, uh, but I just know from our, our bill that the, uh, the price per kilowatt hour has been going up. Um, okay. Let's talk about, um, I don't know if communication was an issue there. I mean, I don't know if the cell towers went down, like if, um, if people are still using phones there, like landlines. Um, most often when we talk about communication, it's among family members either ones that are with us to be able to maintain communication, especially as we do things in and around the location where we live, or it can even just be communication with people that are worried about us or want to know about the safety, um, whether, whether we're safe during a hurricane. We experienced that a lot where we were. Um, and I talked about that with relationship because it kind of became kind of a pain in the ass for the people that are here, like just people constantly like texting them, texting them. It's like people out of nowhere and just became more of like kind of a big, big pain in the ass to kind of deal with everybody that was asking about, you know, one by one asking for an update from you, but was there anything communication wise that you noticed um, during the, uh, during this, this, uh, you know, I was prepared for the communications to be out and I have satellite phones and I've given both of my kids satellite phones who don't use them. Ah, could <laughs> ring their necks anyway. Um, and I'm smart. They're expensive, right? Um, fortunately, AT&T, their cell tower, they stayed up the whole time. I don't know what AT&T is doing, but, you know, bless them. Uh, I de definitely bandwidth dropped. Like you, you weren't going to be able to stream much of everything because everybody was wanting to stream something on their cell phone. So uh, definitely bandwidth dropped, but you were able to make calls and text for the most part, which I think is incredible. A lot of people here also have, well, any, a lot of us have online businesses and I haven't done this yet, but Starlink, uh, you know, the Elon Musk thing seems to be working really well. Uh, so people, mm. a lot of people, and then some of them have Hughes, which is is really low bandwidth, but it's, you know, it's an alternative. 
so communications actually wasn't an issue in this particular uh, instance. And a lot of people here do have, um, you know, backup methods of communication, which is is wise because it absolutely could be an issue. There's there's mm -hmm. no doubt. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What about medical? Um, did well, you wait, feel like go back one thing? By the way, okay. I to take a different take on it. You know, I was absolutely delighted by the number of people who called and texted and said, "Hey, are you all right?" And it was just great because, well, first of all, the outpouring of support, and then the reconnection with people I hadn't actually, you know, I kind of lost touch with a little bit, and like, yeah, I know we're fine, and explained it to them, and to me, and and you know, you kind of have a little bit more time on your hands because, <laughs> well, in some ways you do, in some ways you don't, but. I took it as like a really great thing, you know, to like be in touch and, and that this many people cared. And, and um, I, again, it was bringing people together. So uh, <laughs> you were annoyed. I thought it was great, but you know, that's how any situation is. Right. <laughs> well, I was, an, I was annoyed that people that I would have expected to check up on me didn't check up on me. I don't know what that says about me, but I had family <laughs> members that didn't, just didn't even seem to give a shit about like whatever I was going through or not, if I was safe or not. But um, I had people come out of the woodworks from, from elsewhere um, yeah, it was funny, but I guess I'm just an asshole. Uh, anyway, so uh, uh, medical, uh, when it comes to medical response, did you, was there anything that you um, maybe saw from people around you or how prepared you were or how prepared or different things that maybe you should prepare for related to this type of an incident? Yeah, absolutely. And I am prepared for all kinds of things, especially during this time. You know, there's so many trees down everywhere, right? Like I said, every tree in Puerto Rico got pruned, roads are shut down, a lot of road routes were shut down. So a lot of the communication among people in our island was, hey, is Route 2 open between, you know, Mayaguez and Isabella yet or whatever, you know. Um, but, you know, a lot of people using chainsaws that might not use chainsaws regularly. Uh, so there is and or whatever. Mm. Um, so there is more tendency toward accidents. The The other thing that I noticed and um, was, um, there tended to be a little more aggression on the road. Well, people are out of their, they're out of their habits, right? You normally go from here to Mayaguez on this particular route. And, but that route, like there's this big blockade and it says it's completely shut. And so now you have to go, there's another way, but you have to go this way and you don't normally go that way. And so people are all off their routines. Um, and I noticed it, especially around the gas stations. So uh, the gas stations did seem to perennially have a line of 20 to 30 cars because a lot of people used um, uh, gasoline genera generators, uh, which I think is incredibly uh, stupid because you're just relying another import. I mean, if you're going to have backup power, it should really be solar, right? You know, like, why are you depending on gasoline, which is totally important? But anyway, you know, people were getting really testy around gas stations, which which is a little unusual. The Puerto Ricans by nature generally are really friendly, but also we did do a run to, to Home Depot for some miscellaneous stuff. And, and Home Depot, again, totally prepared for this. They have solar panels and a huge solar system. So they were running just like normal. Most of the important health facilities also are completely on backup generators or backup solar systems. So major emergency type stuff was available. The smaller stuff was all closed. Like I've got a tooth issue and, you know, for, forget about going to the dentist for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, um, the smaller medical stuff is all closed. The smaller medical uh, clinics and things like that don't have backup power and they were just shut. Yeah. Uh, you know, some minor, minor stuff is not going to get addressed. Um, 
yeah, it really shocked me though, the uh, seeing people off of their routines and then the, like in the Home Depot parking lot, you know, you know, people are normally not fighting for a parking spot. It's ridiculous. The parking, there's parking lots wide open and cutting you off or what, you know, I mean, there was some antagonism going on there. Uh, people getting testy and a little bit with, and frustrated. And I can imagine in other populations, which are not nearly as used to this kind of thing, uh, being a lot more aggressive and a lot more upset. Uh, and but but you know if you think about it, you're off your routine. Everybody's off your routine. You're figuring things out. You're having to create things. You know it it's, it puts people on edge. So there mm-hmm. is that uh, component to it. And and if you don't ha- if you need a critical medicine like you need thyroid medicine or diabetes or whatever the heck it is that you're on and you need you know, you need to have three months of that stuff in supply somewhere. That's just fundamental, right? You know, uh, if you, if you don't have that, I would say that you're incredibly stupid, you know, Um, and all the other stuff, the bandages for lacerations and things like that, you know, that's just basic uh, preps that you need, you need to have. So, um, because you are going to be doing things that you don't do and accident, that's when accidents happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good point on that. Also, um, the, uh, you know, people will prepare, I I think people get very gear focused. And so they might prepare by getting a chainsaw. Uh, They might prepare by buying a generator. I know here when we just had Ian come through a few of the deaths that happened just down south of us um, were from people trying to use generators inside of their home putting oh the generator God. inside of the garage and all of a sudden they die from. Uh, oh, from the, poisoning. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, um, so it's not just about like getting the gear and this really goes with anything gear wise, whether it's from a firearm, it could be, it doesn't matter what it is. Like you've got to know how to use that stuff. It's just, okay, we're, we're covered. We have, we have a generator here. Um, if the power goes out, we can use it. Now, most people don't even read the damn, you know, warning section of the, uh, they, they go straight to the quick start Here's how to here's how to turn this thing on so you can have electricity, and don't look at all of the precautions that have to go with that, and they end up dying because of it. So you bring up a really good point that there can be, um, you need to have even whether even if it's for other people having the ability to be able to provide at least trauma care to anybody around you because you could get cut off from first responders. Um, you need to be your own first responder, whether that is a chainsaw cut, whether it is something that happens a tree limb falls down from the storm and, and hurts somebody. Um, there's lots of things that you can be. Um, also, even just going back to when we're talking about how the, uh, like there's backup of sewage and I mean, it's just, it becomes this toxic mess. And okay. so if you are have even just a small cut can become infected very easily. If you don't know how to sterilize wounds, if you don't know how to dress wounds, it's all just very basic stuff that anybody can learn, but most people just don't learn it either because there's an over-reliance on first responders or you don't realize that those kinds of things can even happen, that there is, there are all these like germs and, 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 uh, and things that are going to be out there that you're going to have to deal with that you normally don't even necessarily take into account. So um, some really good points there. You know, even without an emergency, you know, there's a, a friend of mine, good friend of mine is a farmer and he's doing what most farmers do and working too hard. Uh, normally has like, I think a 24 inch blade chainsaw and he ha- happened to have a larger one than usual this time. And 
swiped it across his leg. He's this huge laceration in his leg. Doesn't have, he's a farmer, doesn't have any money. So he comes over here. So we clean up out the wound and um, you know, friend of, a friend of ours sews it up. And then I teach him how to poultice it to keep the, you know, to, so it won't get infected. Um, you know, we're, we're using these skills all the time uh, as just as a part of our daily life. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's important. It, it really is important to know these things because there will come a time when there is no medical care and that time is coming very, very soon. And, and again, you're absolutely right. All of these things can be learned and fairly easily. The thing is, is to do it now. <laughs> Actually, the thing would have been to do it a few years ago, <laughs> but now is good too. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we've talked around a little bit about security, that tensions can run high when people are preparing and there's a this fear of missing out sort of, or this, this sense of scarcity that happens with resources that are in the area, whether that's, we talk about food and water and things like that, but it's also even just people, gasoline, going to the grocery store, going to the, the, the hardware store to be able to get supplies. Any of these things can cause people to feel like they're not as well prepared or people are hogging up. It's not fair. This not, it's not fair mentality is really, it's really pervasive. I've seen it so many times when it comes to people preparing for natural disasters, it's even worse when those resources are gone and something that's more long-term. You also talked about, which I thought was really interesting. It's something I hadn't really thought of before, but when there is no electricity and there is no television, there's no video games and, and the youth are there, um, they're looking for something to do. It may very well be a very natural thing for them to like, let's go out and get together. And they might want to go around and look around and see what's out there. I can see that being a good thing. I can see it being a bad thing. First of all, any group of teenagers, there's always the uh, the possibility for kids just to, you know, they don't, especially if there's no fear of retaliation or, or accountability because first responders are overwhelmed. I, 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 like you, I also tend to believe in the goodness of people, but also being prepared for the ones who are the wolves in sheep's clothing as well. Now, having more people outside. And I think this is very, I think I've seen this very common in, along uh, in Puerto Rico because people are more community minded. I think a lot of times because they are more dependent upon one another and the community, the sense of community is there. And so people will come out, they will, they will congregate more, talk more, be out and about more, which all gives more um, kind of observation of the area it gives it kind of like the neighborhood watch on steroids. Like everybody's out there anyway. Right. So it's not like there's any roving, gangs of people looting places and things like that but but that stuff is out there right like so security is always an issue what are some of the things that you maybe observed or good bad ugly or whatever or would do differently next time in the situation especially if you're looking to, to get your own place there well you know yeah with security uh, on your own place i think uh, one of the things here and as i've noted that a lot of these houses are already built with security in mind and i think it's a relic from a time period when things were a lot harsher so there are a lot of houses here with you know fencing and it's also part of the um, latino uh, motif of having your house fenced pretty well in the front and then once you get through the gate you're in right so uh, that is is often the way the Latins just build their houses, uh, and I think it's a really good thing. Uh, and and again, you know, there really wasn't a lot of danger here um, at this point in time. But yeah, I can definitely see the potential for there being serious issues uh, in the in the future. 
And again, I, I like to live in or near a small town with a community, with a lot of people I know. Uh, I think the danger, uh, one of the biggest myths people think of survivalism is, you know, I'm going to have my bug out location way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that's actually, you know, almost more dangerous because then, you know, you're out there on your own, right? Which is much more easy to overrun you. Um, again, I didn't sense a lot of trouble here now, but in, in, in a long-term situation or especially, we just don't know how people are going to behave when the rule of law is no longer a thing, when it's clear that the government has collapsed, when the money no longer works. Uh, you know, they're, they're, I, think, I think some of the youth are gonna surprise us and stand up and become leaders and go, you know, they've been suppressed by this entire system this whole time and they're gonna real, they'll find themselves and really begin to step up and there will be others that, that go the other way. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, and I've read enough interviews and talked to have enough interviews with people who have survived through a collapse situation, especially like uh, Argentina a few decades ago. And they were like, you know, just really shocked you who would rob you. You know, it would be the guy in a business suit with the briefcase and you would just never think of that. Right. So um, I, I in this situation, security was not a big issue, but I can definitely see. I, I think, again, that's one of your preps, right? The beans, bullets, and band-aids. Like, you really do have to have uh, security. And being a woman, I tend to think of myself as the home front, and I'm definitely community-oriented. But again, I, I told you, I, I keep my my skills up with handguns, rifles, uh, jujitsu. Uh, I'm, I'm very care careful about my household and, and making sure, you know, that is defensible or, you know, I'm not necessarily, you know, we're doing the same OPSEC thing of not necessarily telling everybody what you have in terms of preps, you know, you know, people know that I'm into growing food and they don't need to know what I'm storing. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely. Marjorie, this has been awesome. Like I, I love to get firsthand experience, uh, especially from people that are already knowledgeable because it's always, like I said, in the beginning, it's, it's always a process of learning. We should always be learning. We should always be fine tuning our preps learning from other people, standing on the shoulders of giants. And I really appreciate you sharing your personal experience with, uh, with our audience out here. Listen, everybody, um, as I said before, Marjorie is truly is somebody, I have seen her homestead, I've seen uh, like how she lives her life. And she is somebody who really walks the walk and better yet has even documented it to allow other people that have no experience whatsoever, no matter how old you are, no matter how little experience you might have, how out of shape you are, it doesn't matter. Like now is the time to start being more self-reliant because whether it is because of inflation and prices are, are skyrocketing, whether we go through a recession, no matter what happens, if you know that you can always depend upon yourself, then it makes you so much more safer, so much more secure, and you're able to live your lifestyle that you normally do much more easily than other people that are more dependent upon a system that can be very fragile. Uh, definitely go over and check out our website. There's lots of places for you to kind of rummage around in there and really kind of guide yourself. One of the things that we didn't talk about, um, which was kind of like part of this, was the medical part of it. And she has a whole program and information area where you can check out how to grow your own medicine. Like there are lots of things that you can do if you are dependent upon medicines of ways that you can use natural herbs, things that you can even grow yourself 
to be healthier right now, as well as if there is no prescriptions around for you, maybe things that you can do to be better, to be better able to be there for yourself, to be able to be able to grow things that will allow you to maintain your health and vitality, even when there's no pharmacy available. So go check her out over at thegrownetwork.com and uh, get signed up for one of our programs there. You're going to love everything that you find there. And until our next uh, Warrior Life broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. You've been listening to the Warrior Life Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us spread the mission of self-reliance and self-protection when you rate us and leave us a comment wherever you enjoy these podcasts. And don't forget to check out our posts and videos on our social media channels. You'll see a full directory when you visit our website at www.warriorlife.com. We'll see you next time. This has been the Warrior Life Podcast. Prepare. Train. Survive.